This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there. Because you're listening to this podcast, we at Blue Wire want you to know this. One, we freaking love you. And two, we want to learn more about you. Help us make more content you'll love by filling out a survey you can find in the description of this podcast. You'll help us out a ton, and you'll have a chance to win a Blue Wire t-shirt, hoodie, or a pair of AirPods. We appreciate you, hope you're staying safe, and want you to enjoy this podcast. What is Poppin' Hardwood Knox listeners, I am Dan Favalli coming at you with Adam Frommel, editor-in-chief and founder of NBA Math and also an editor for Bleacher Report. Follow him on Twitter, as always, at Frommel09. We are taking another break from our decade ranking series. Rest assured, the Memphis Grizzlies top 10 players of the decade are coming. I believe we'll actually have that drop on Monday. This podcast, though, since we had the opportunity to podcast on the anniversary of the 1996 NBA draft, we're not going to do a redraft. We are going to draft teams. We're building a starting lineup, each of us. We're picking five players trying to build the best starting lineup. So this is not, and I want to emphasize this, a redraft. There will be selections made for fit purposes, particularly on after the first selections, because you build basically your starting lineup around that entire player. It's pretty much the idea at that point. So if you have any feedback, we'd like to know who you think has the best starting lineup that we come up with. If you have any other feedback, criticisms, do you like this? Maybe it's an exercise we could do for future drafts. Again, we didn't want to do just another redraft. Those are out there. I, in fact, just wrote one for this. So uh, you can check that out on Bleacher Report. But again, I just want to emphasize, reiterate one more time, we're building starting fives off the uh, the 96 NBA draft. Let us know who has the better one and whether you liked this concept. The usual housekeeping notes before we get to this, though. Above all, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever else, wherever excuse me, you're getting your podcast. iTunes helps us out the most. So even if you're not using it, and you can throw us a five star rating, write a review, even if it has constructive criticism. We very much appreciate that. Subscribing and downloading all of our episodes wherever you consume your podcast, though, also helps us out a ton. So make sure you're doing that. If you have done all those things, are doing all those things, we appreciate shout outs, retweeting our endorsements on Twitter, word of mouth, letting people know that you like this podcast because obviously it's wonderfully mediocre and you love it. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can follow our YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Most of our podcasts are put up there. You'll find the decade player ranking series up there on its own playlist. Last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsor for this week. As always, betonline.ag. You'll be hearing from them in just a few moments. Adam, how are you doing after listening to me speak off the cuff for more than two and a half minutes consecutively? I'm just waking up from a about two and a half minute nap. No, I'm, I'm 
I'm doing pretty well, aside from the fact that you kind of bulldozed through the joke that I was planning on making about your uh, your redraft on Bleacher Report. And you know, I was going to ask who wrote that thoroughly mediocre one, but you know, it is what it is. Look, that draft took Steve Nash over, over Allen Iverson, which is criminal, apparently. I didn't realize. I at least thought it was a debate. I wasn't trying to argue that it was consensus, but uh, people were mad about that selection. Steve Nash at number two over Iverson at number three. However, we're not here to litigate a redraft, are we? We're not. We are, we're putting a new spin on this. And, and to be perfectly honest, like we don't know exactly how this is going to work out. So as Dan said, we definitely want feedback. And if, if this is something that you want us to do more of moving forward, because um, we, we don't know how it's going to go. Are we going to stop at the starting lineups? Are we going to draft a sixth man? Who knows? Yeah, that might be. We, that's gonna, that'll be a decision that we just make mid-podcast. You're welcome in advance, everybody. I think it's going to be whoever feels like they have the worst lineup. Yeah, Let, Let's keep going. It also, depends on, it also depends on how quickly we get through it, too. If right. there's all of a sudden knowing us that, that that could be a challenge that yeah, or this is going to be a 12 minute podcast. We're going to need to draft the entire rotation. Uh, <laughs> uh, and maybe this isn't new. If there's another podcast or a concept like this that you've seen happening to let us know, we're not trying to uh, step on on anyone's toes here, but Adam had this idea to do it this way. So we're going to build starting lineups. Uh, it turns out that I have the first pick and Adam is going to have the second pick. So I guess I'll just get right into it and make my first pick. Now, the way I'm viewing this, and we, I, justifying each selection is probably a good start. The first player you pick is the one that you build the lineup around because why else would you make them your first pick at the risk of them not being there later? I am still going to pick Kobe Bryant, who should be the consensus number one pick. I don't know that there's anyone out there that would take Steve Nash or Allen Iverson over him. I, I certainly I hope, hope not, not when you yeah. look at his career. And we're 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 drafting these players. I'm assuming as if they're at, at their peaks. Correct. That's how you viewed this as well. I'm kind of viewing, yeah, like the the peak version. Um, you know, maybe like a five year peak. Basically, like you're going to get the best versions of these players to build around. We're not really, you know, like you don't need to draft Kobe because he's going to stick around for 20 years. You're drafting peak Kobe. Right. And look, his entire resume, you might be able to, if, if we're only dealing with five years, there are a bunch of different combinations you could use. We're talking about a uh, two-time final MVP award winner. He has one league MVP, 15 all-NBA teams, 12 all-defensive bids, two scoring titles, and then obviously the, the five championships. I don't even know why I would have to justify this pick. And also, if we're viewing the first selection as the player around which you're going to build your starting lineup... The perfect way to start out is with Kobe because I do feel like he's the type of player where you need to properly adapt the rest of the roster or lineup in this case or rotation, whatever it winds up being around him. Yeah, I mean, there's not much justification necessary there because he's probably the easiest to build around because of how far above everybody else he is just in terms of talent and production. So that was the pretty easy choice. But fortunately, I get to have two. I will note, though, I'll try and do this for everyone. Kobe was originally selected in the 1996 NBA draft at 13th by the Charlotte Hornets, then traded to the Lakers. But 13th, I think he turned out to be a pretty valuable number 13 pick. And the Hornets are kind of just the footnote because he didn't want to work out for everyone and he kind of wanted to force his way to L.A., even though he would tell you, and I think he he said this a couple of years ago, um, that he was excited to play with the Hornets until he realized that they weren't going to be like super committed to giving him a lot of minutes from the start. And that's when he wanted out, which is a, a bit of revisionist history, but he was we'll, big, we'll give well, it to can him. Can you fault him for, hey, if I'm not going to play, I'd rather not play in L.A. for that first year? I mean, he came off the bench for two years. It's 
it's really just it's it's another example of how he modeled his game and his playing style after Michael Jordan. You know, the he had to make up the perceived slights to motivate himself. I will. This is the other thing, and since it's this is just a pick, you don't justify. I feel like even the the second pick in this, yours maybe a little bit, you might have to. But if he if you did do the '96 redraft over, like if we were able to go back in time, Philly, him ending up in Philly would just be chef's right. kiss. No one can right. see it. I just did lower the motion, Marion but, straight yeah. to Philly. Yeah, yeah, it would be great. Um, but yeah, so for my first pick here, I'm going to uh, I'm going to go with Steve Nash, who was originally selected 15th overall by the Phoenix Suns. Um, I I think you can debate between Nash and Iverson in terms of who has the better NBA legacy. Um, they're probably in fairly similar positions in historical rankings, but in terms of building a team around the player, Nash clearly rises ahead of Iverson for me just because of the way that he played. And I'm actually going to have him play for my team slightly differently than he played, even at his peak as a two-time MVP for the Phoenix Suns, because as innovative and as forward thinking as Mike D'Antoni's seven seconds or less offense was centered around Nash, it did not have him shoot the ball enough. And I just, I can't help but think that he was just born a decade too early and, and imagine what his career would have been like if he had entered the league at a time where players like Steph Curry were getting the green light to shoot all the time. Um, he said, he told ESPN's Tim McMahon in 2018, I never took it to the heights that the numbers validate in today's day and age where I probably should have shot the ball 20 times a game. It probably would have made a lot more sense. Well, it would have made a lot more sense, and we are going to let him do that. I support that decision. The only thing I'll say is I do probably think that even though he did, he could hit pull-up jumpers, I wonder how his efficiency is impacted by that type of role, because we're talking about someone with four 50-40-90 seasons, the most in NBA history, and twice as many as any other player. But the other thing that got me, and I know these things because I, again, wrote the 96 redraft for Bleach Report, there was... For basically a decade, he averaged around 17 points, 10 assists on a 50-44-91 shooting slash. To basically have 50-40-90 for an entire decade, just mind-meltingly efficient. And that's ultimately when I, you know, and I think for you, you're making the same decision. Are you going to take him over Allen Iverson if you're starting something from scratch? Why I put him at number two when I did the, wrote the redraft for Bleach Report is he just guaranteed offensive excellence for teams in a way that Allen Iverson never did. Maybe that's in part because the Sixers never put the right talent around him. But for Steve Nash, it was never, it was never, how do you put the right talent around him? Everyone was the right talent because he amplified and simplified some roles or he would build many others. And so that's why I ended up going with him over Iverson. So I think that's a solid way to start your, your lineup slash rotation off, whatever we're going to call it. Nash Nash led his teams, whether with the Mavericks or the Suns, to the NBA's best offensive rating in six different seasons. And granted, like he always got to play around a lot of talent. Amari Stoudemire and Sean Marion and Phoenix, and then the Dallas teams alongside Dirk Nowitzki. Like he was he was always given more opportunities to succeed than Iverson got. But it's kind of a chicken egg scenario here where it, it's hard to know like how much of it was because of the teammates and how much of it was because he just guaranteed that offensive productivity. And I, I tend to think that he could have been used even better because even if you, you do see some efficiency declines when he's firing over the top of screens in the pick and roll game more than he ever did during his peak days, it's still going to work. He's still going to make those shots. He remains one of the better shooters in NBA history. And it helps that we're going to put Ray Allen 
next to him with our second pick. Um, Allen was originally the fifth pick of the draft from the Minnesota Timberwolves and immediately traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, I, I want that early version of him. I want I want the lockdown defender on the perimeter. I want the guy who competed in a dunk contest because he just had so much bounce that we tend to forget about because he he evolved, devolved, I'm not quite sure which to use there, into one of the NBA's greatest three-point shooters ever and a guy who took such a high percentage of his shots from behind the arc um, later in his career. But you put that kind of shooter, that kind of slasher around Nash and force defenses to pay attention to him on the perimeter and to not let him get free on these backdoor cuts and stuff. And our offense is just going to get even better while also giving us someone who can take on the tougher perimeter defensive assignment and let Nash rest a little on that end. I forgot that this was a snake draft for a second, the way we were doing it. But so Ray Allen is who I had my eye on. Ray Allen, prime Ray Allen was just spectacular. He has seven seasons in which he cleared 20 points, three assists, and two made threes per game. Only one player in NBA history has more such seasons, and that is James Harden with with eight. So I support that pick. He's sort of like the plug-and-play star, and you kind of touched upon it by his move when he goes to the Celtics. He was still, yeah, it was the tail. It was towards the back end of his career, but he still maintained his stardom for a couple seasons while just drastically shifting the, the type of role that he was assuming. Attention Hardwood Knox listeners, there is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partners, betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit BetOnline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. My second pick? and Uh, You're going to take one of my all-time favorite players here. I know it. Am I? I think so. Am I? I though? think I know where you're going with it. I'm, I'm thinking about being super bold here, but I also don't. I don't. I'm actually. Oh man, this is. Well, you get two picks here, so. That's also true. All right, so I'm gonna make my first pick. I'm going uh, Jermaine O'Neal. Uh, prime Jermaine O'Neal was just an absolute, absolute force, and you you know I have to like him because I'm I'm still like even in retrospect I'm just not against like more conventional bigs, and O'Neal obviously had like some more range uh, in his repertoire than, than most bigs of, of this period. But he was, when he made the move from Portland to Indiana and I, there was like the season of feeling out in, in Indiana. But after that, after his first season in Indiana, over the next six, he averaged 20.4 points, 10 rebounds, two assists, two blocks, um, a stat line during that time that was matched by, by only Tim Duncan. Uh, he won most improved player. He has three all NBA selections, Six all-star selections, and 2003-2004, Jermaine O'Neal finished third in MVP voting. And so he's just, I think he's going ends up being a perfect fit uh, alongside Kobe Bryant. Perhaps not the, well, not perhaps, he's definitely not the best defensive big, but still gives you sort of a presence around the rim. And I'm going to get, hopefully this isn't going to be too weird, but my my third pick here to to round out my lineup, I'm going to go with Pedro Stoyakovich. Someone who I don't think 
people realize was more than just a shooter. And I say this based on some of the comments I got on the redraft. Uh, he had the limitless range, but he could knock down off balance jumpers. He was okay putting the the ball on the floor. And look, he finished top five on the MVP ballot the same year that O'Neal did in 2003, 2004. And he has that I know his peak was shorter than most, but between 2000 and 2005, we're talking about someone who cleared over 20 points and two assists while shooting better than 50% from two and 40% from three. I think his stardom, similar to Ray Allen's, is a different type of stardom, obviously, different play styles, but it's it's more universal than I think a lot of other high-end players are, and so that he can fit with whatever roster is basically going to be around him because he can play off the ball so well. And he made defenses work when he was in Sacramento just pinballing around. So my starting lineup right now has Kobe, Peja, and and Jermaine O'Neal, and I feel pretty good about it. I admire your dedication to just paying homage to the 1996 draft with a throwback lineup that is going to take so many long two-pointers. Look, if you can tell Steve Nash to shoot— dedication to history. If you can tell Steve Nash to shoot more, I can tell my team which which kinds of shots to take. That's fair. I don't I don't hate either of those selections, but I am glad that you left the guy that I really wanted on the board. I was curious was as actually, to why you thought I was going to take this guy, actually. Because he wasn't actually taken during the 1996 NBA draft, but he is technically a part of that class because he went undrafted. And that's Ben Wallace, who might never have averaged double-digit points during his NBA career, but was the best player on a championship-winning team, a multiple-time defensive player of the year, one of the greatest interior defenders of all time, and a guy who is going to make Steve Nash's life so much easier, really on both ends of the floor. Like We have, we have him picking up behind the turnstile on the defensive end and deterring people from attacking the rim against us, and we also have a big athletic body who did not have a chance, no disrespect meant to Chauncey Billups, but did not have a chance to play with a passer of Nash's caliber. And I think we can make Ben Wallace score at least a dozen points per game just off the pick-and-roll lobs. Look, you're not drafting him for his offense anyway. He's one of the best defensive players in, in NBA history. So I value a little bit more range on my team, which is why I wouldn't go with him. Um, I might have, I almost considered going with Marcus Camby, someone that you're super high on. Obviously, Ben Wallace was better, so you have to make him the pick before Camby. I do. Um, and then with my, with my, this is my fourth pick here, I'm going to take Sharif Abdurrahim. Um, I, I am personally attached to him because when I was growing up in Atlanta, I went to a basketball camp um, that he, he led. So I got to, to meet him at a young age and, and learn things from him. Um, but that is not the real reason for the selection. And that's just because we're looking at these peak versions. And if Sharif had managed to stay healthy deeper into his career, I think we're talking about him on the same level as some of these guys who went earlier in the draft. I mean, he only had one all-star appearance, uh, the 2001-2002 season with the Hawks, where he averaged 21.2 points, 9.0 rebounds, and 3.1 assists. But this guy was a three-level scorer. He was a competent defender. He was an underrated facilitator who was comfortable operating out of the post from the elbows and distributing for his teammates. And I, I just think if we're, we're looking at the peak of a career rather than the totality of a career, that he's just an awesome value here. I feel terrible that Allen Iverson is still left on the board when he is a top three talent from this draft, I think. But he you doesn't think who are you putting over Alan, in a vacuum. Who are you putting over Iverson after three? 
the only the only option would be uh, would be Allen. I think there's some case for Ray Allen moving into the top three past him, uh, but I, I I can't justify having Iverson on the same team as Steve Nash when both of them need the ball in their hands to thrive. So I'm going to go with Sharif here, and I'm not going to feel bad about it. Look, you're kind of touching on my moral dilemma here because how do I like at this point? It's how do I not take Iverson? I just I don't like the idea necessarily of playing him with Kobe. At the same time, he went played with Melo. So look, why not here? I'm gonna take. I'm just gonna take Allen Iverson. If you have a chance to get two of the top three players from this draft class, this story draft class, two MVPs on the same roster, right? It's a, it's great from a talent perspective. Right. No so, qualms there. And so look, if we're look, there's some imagineering to steal phrasing from Disney. There's some imagineering involved here, and so you're you're going to hope that these are two players in Kobe and Allen Iverson who won't have a, a problem deferring to one another. Whereas with Iverson, there was always just look at his number twos in Philly. They were all short lived and none were better when you're looking at them in totality, probably than Eric Snow. You can make a case that maybe Dikembe Mutombo, uh, age 34, 35, Dikembe Mutombo could have been the best teammate he had. He spent basically no time with Andre Godala. So there are different ways for, for you to approach this, uh, but I, I look at his brief partnership with Larry Hughes, and it scares me a little bit for this. But I think Kobe and Allen Iverson ultimately find a way to to make it work. And like you have one of the uh, great shooters in Pedro Stojakovic just sort of flying around, and so that's going to help with the spacing. Jermaine O'Neal has some pick and pop to his game as well, too. So I, I do think that ultimately helps it. And I just this was a position where I couldn't not take him if that makes it like it just it just wasn't an option. Right. And, and you do still have that opening in the backcourt. I mean, that's what it that's what it comes down to. Like at some point, I think talent has to supersede fit. And this is a good spot for that to happen. Right. I mean, look, I, I it's combustible, but I think it's it's high. It's high. It's very combustible. It's high ceiling, low floor. It's one of those types of things. It's high stakes here. We're talking about it. It could either be magnificent or just absolutely awful. And I'm still on the clock here. Correct. You are still on the clock here, and I'm really hoping that you don't take my guy here. I don't know. This is such a tough spot because it has to be sort of like a front court wing. And when you just look at the options. Or you could go big ball here. And I'm not throwing Camby next to Jermaine O'Neal. That just All right. can't happen. All right. I mean, he can, you're about to throw Camby with Ben Wallace. That is out of control. You're not even going to spoil it. Just that awkward silence. I right will there. neither confirm nor deny. You know what? No one's going to like this pick because I don't think they remember what he was good at during his prime, but Antoine Walker, I'm going to throw there. I briefly considered Kerry Kittles, but I don't think he provided enough defensively to where I value Antoine Walker's offense more on this team than I would Kerry Kittles'. Um, even though Kittles, sort of another plug-and-play guy, really helped amplify those Nets teams. But for Antoine Walker, like this Again, was... I, I continue to admire the dedication to the long twos. Again, my team is going to be taking threes. And look, Antoine Walker, he dribbled. He got a, first of all, he got around guys too in his heyday. He could get past guys off the dribble. And then also he was hitting these off the dribble threes, but he can also be the, the guy who's going to launch those super long bombs from, from deep. So I think the spacing then becomes valued around both Kobe and Allen Iverson. So that's, that's why I ultimately went the way I did here. I, I think it makes sense. I think we forget that. Walker played on on those bad teams with the Celtics where he needed to jack up so many shots and that was always going to 
caused those efficiency dips, and he was obviously a talented scorer. I just, I just hope that your locker room survives when Antoine Walker is only getting three shots a game because the other 80 are going to Iverson and Kobe. I think looking, I feel like my team is going to get hammered uh, in part because, look, I understand the risk I took with Kobe and Allen Iverson, but Antoine Walker's a pick that I'm going to stand by. Maybe people don't remember how good Soyakovich was either, but Antoine Walker specifically, I'm talking like he wasn't super quick, but he scooted around guys in the post. He, I wouldn't say blew by them, but he got by them off the dribble uh, when he was younger. And so you have that dynamic, but also with his three-point volume and, and capabilities, even if he was erratic, even at his peak, I think for this team, that ends up being the best offensive fit that's left on the board. I Yeah, I, I think it is who I would have picked for your team had I had the same four to start. Um, so I don't mind that selection at all. I think it's good value. I'm just, I'm glad that you didn't take Kerry Kittles because that is who I want for my team. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'd like to read an excerpt from a piece recently written about the 1996 draft um, to, to help justify this. So if you'll indulge me here. I'll, I guess I'll try. I mean. All right. So there was a smoothness to Kittles' game. He played brilliantly off the ball, putting pedal to metal in transition and ducking in for baseline feats. His three-point shooting was vital during the New Jersey Nets' back-to-back finals runs, giving Jason Kidd the ultimate outlet, and he had a knack for throwing quick second passes that kept the offense humming. Through his first eight seasons, Kittle averaged 14.3 points and 2.6 assists while splashing in 37.8% of his threes. Only three players during that same span matched his benchmarks on as many three-point attempts, Ray Allen, Eddie Jones, and Reggie Miller. That was from, uh, I can't remember. Anonymous wrote that. wrote that in his 96 redraft. Yeah. 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 I can't, I can't quite put my, put my finger on who wrote that, but I think it's great that we have, uh, two of those, two of those four guys who hit as many three pointers while making 37.8% of them in, in Ray Allen and Kerry Kittles and really like his ability to, to thrive in transition, to play as an off the ball scorer, um, to, to be, not necessarily a great defender, but at least a competent one with Ben Wallace behind him. He he is the perfect fit as the, the final cog in our starting five here. I'm assuming that we ha- we have to keep going at this point. I, th- I think we have to at least do a sixth man so that the picks are even since, you know, otherwise, you know, with an odd number, whoever goes first has the advantage, right? right. Which means that I'm taking Marcus Camby here, obviously. Oh, I hate um, you. <laughs> I want that defensive depth. Um, I, I need it behind behind my Nash Allen Kittle's backcourt trio. Um, but, you know, Camby was just incredible on the boards, on defense, just a shot-blocking behemoth, um, even though he was undersized. A, a guy who who thrived because of his energy, his indefatigable motor, his relentless hustle. He's he's just a guy who who played basketball the right way and understood his limitations and didn't let those limit him. And I've always loved guys like that. He was always one of my favorites to watch because anytime you don't need to score to provide immense value, I respect that. And on a team with Sharif Abdurrahim, Ray Allen, Kerry Kittles, and Steve Nash, I don't need a scorer. Um, I, I need a backup who's going to make sure that that Ben Wallace can stay fresh and that our defensive performance isn't going to dip when Wallace isn't on the floor. And we have that in Camby. It's interesting how Camby is not claimed by any one fan base. Even though he was so good, I, I, I like, associate him most with the Nuggets. I see. I uh, yeah. Th- there's the Nuggets. There's the Knicks. There's there's even the the Raptors. Uh, but what's interesting about Camby too is that he didn't just like he wasn't confined to those like functional nooks and crannies of what everyone thinks that his game was. He took more jumpers than I think everyone realizes. He wasn't necessarily 
good at them, and his his motion took a couple days to get through. But he he took them. He put the ball on the floor a little bit more than I think people remember. He, he could block jump shots away from the rim, and he averaged uh, over three assists in multiple seasons, which is not right. something that you would expect from a player with his skill set. And he just he had a bunch of there was some switchability to his defense as well, and so he seems like the ultimate role player. I would have loved to have put uh, him him on my team coming off the bench. I'm left with like an impossible decision here between Stefan Marbury or Ilgowskis. And I really don't know how to go. Part of me just wants to say like, let's lean into just the offensive uh, diversification. And we're going to have all these guys that can put the ball on the floor and try and score. I don't care about whatever locker room issues there might be. And then the other part of me is like, you know, so Drunas Ilgowskis have him come off the bench behind O'Neal, maybe even make O'Neal your sixth man, just because Ogaskis is sort of more of that steadying presence. But I think, I think I'm going to go with Stefan Marbury here. I'm just lean. I'm leaning into the, the star power. Like we're still talking about their Iverson, Kobe, Antoine Walker, and Marbury in the, and Jermaine O'Neal in the same locker room. Who's your coach? Uh, to, to be determined. At I think point. you need Phil Jackson here. I'm, I'm willing go, to no, give you Phil Jackson I'm, to manage these personalities. I'm going Greg Popovich. I think. So, okay. Okay. So I'm I'm going. Greg Popovich is going to coach this team. Okay. But I'm just I'm going to take the gamble here. I know I know what the optics are going to look like, but if you look at this team, there is so much offensive firepower. There is a lot of offensive firepower. <laughs> so and look, Stefan Marbury was good. I think the I know everyone, or not everyone, but they're the vast majority of people are going to say his best basketball never came for the best versions of his best teams. But so many of the organizations he played for, are they just have, they're incompetent historically, whether it's Phoenix, whether it's Minnesota, whether it was the Knicks. And I think he was a star at enough stops where it kind of shows that his individual talent is scalable. And so, yeah, maybe he's going to have a hard time fitting in within specific parameters uh, and you don't want him playing next to Iverson and Kobe at the same time. But rest assured, this team is going to try it. Those will be lineups that we run at. Yeah, you absolutely need to. But he was he was really good, and so if he couldn't carry a team on his own, he's at least there's at least substance to his game, and and he was so ridiculously good. It's another pick too where I find myself like Stefan Marbury still on the board, so I, I feel like I need to take him. So th- this team once more incredibly combustible, but I kind of dig it. I, I like the risk that's being taken here. If you can manage to convince Marbury that he's playing in China too, then you're set. I just don't just know tell if him that he's coming off the bench in China. I just don't know if there's enough room for all the statues we would have to build in that scenario. After that's the fact. valid. So that's, that's valid. the only thing I'd be worried about. Also, I, Stefan Marbury in retrospect, imagine prime Stefan Marbury as the sixth man. Also, and if I oh, had, it's, it would be perfect. If I had any sort of backbone, I would put Stefan Marbury in the starting lineup and make out Iverson the sixth man. <laughs> Ooh, intriguing. I, I feel like either of them would thrive in that role, though. Um, I did want to circle back and, and say one more thing about Camby, just because I was looking up this stat while you were ruminating over your last pick. Um, only nine players have ever averaged at least three assists and three blocks per game in the same season. And those nine players are Bill Walton, Shaquille O'Neal, Bob Lanier, Andre Kirilenko, Patrick Ewing, each of whom did so once. Camby did so twice. David Robinson and Hakeem Olajuwon did it three times apiece. And Kareem did it six times. And that's awesome company, and I'm I'm very pleased that I don't even like have to manipulate the benchmarks that much to get to that 
that quality of a nine-man group. I will say you kind of have to worry about staggering certain players as much as I do because Camby's not normal six-man material just because he's not going to generate his own offense. No, and I, I think that we probably could get away with playing bigger lineups with Camby and Ben Wallace on the floor together just because no one would ever score. And I think Nash alone generates so much offense even without too much spacing around him that we would still be able to like at least score enough to keep up. If you have Nash and Ray Allen on the court, so you know that you have two of these historically great shooters, it probably helps, but you're going to make fun of the shot selection on my team when you're just going to have two players who can't shoot. Oh, they're not going to shoot though. There will be no shots allocated to them. But I I do think that like these, these players together, Sharif played, played a lot of three early in his career. Um, I, I think he, he is movable into those wing roles where he can he can be a, a spot-up guy, where he can defend perimeter players. And I do think that we have the flexibility to play some really big lineups that are still going to be able to play like with a, a sustainable modern style as long as Nash is on the court. If Steve Nash gets hurt, this team is toast. It, see, if I were you and you were dead set on drafting a big as in your sixth-man role, I might have considered Ilgauskas just because he had more of the offensive layers to his game. The, the feathery touch around the basket. He had some he had some semblance of a floor game too when he was younger. And then we know that he could he could space the floor. It wasn't always beyond the three-point line, but he can knock down those those long twos. So I feel like for your roster, this is I like the 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 talent play or just the high upside play with with Camby yeah. and what it could do to your defense. I feel like Elgaskis might have been the safer fit play. Just like I feel like for me if I was going for fit with my sixth man, Derek Fisher might have been the the best fit left on the board. I was going to say I considered Derek Fisher just because it would guarantee you a championship or five. I considered Tony Delk because he's good for one fifty point game every five hundred forty five games. Um, you know, stuff like that was appealing, but ultimately, Camby's talent was just too much. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested. So let's recap these rosters here. Your t- your starting. Lineup, your rotation, your six-man rotation ended up being starting lineup of Steve Nash, Ray Allen, Sharif Abdul-Rahim. Uh, you had, why am I missing your your other Terry Kittles. Terry Kittles. Terry Kittles on That's the way. Right. Terry Kittles and Ben Wallace with the six-man of Marcus Camby. And we're going to be coached by Steve Kerr because I would love to see what he could do with someone like Nash filling the Curry role. Okay. I could I could see that. Uh, we're going to be coached by Greg Popovich over here. My team is Allen Iverson and Kobe Bryant starting backcourt. Pages Sayakovich, Antoine Walker, and Jermaine O'Neal up front with Stefan Marbury coming off the bench. So you're, everyone, let us know which team is going to fare better. Let us know what you thought about this experiment. Is it something where sh- we should be adding a third person just to make it harder, um, make it a little bit longer? Let us know again on Twitter at Hardwood Knox or get it Adam at Frommel09. I'm at Dan Favalli, F A V A L E. Until next time, though, I leave everybody with a shout out to the one, the only, the real star of this draft class from 1996, Malik Rose. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.